0: Back to the IQT podcast this week, BNext discusses some of the latest developments in the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak. In particular, we're talking about the work of IQT Labs' visualization team in helping us understand the data being collected during the outbreak. I'm Kevin O'Connell, a member of the technical staff on BNext, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Dylan George and Andrea Brennan. But first, I thought we would go down through some of the recent news this week. Associated with the out, with the outbreak, we'll kick off with some good news first. On the hopeful side, hospitalization rates in many places are plateauing, and possibly on the decline. New York State is a good example of that. And concurrently, or potentially driving that, the calculations of spread are being driven down in many places in the country. Washington State is a good example of that. When the um, when the propagation rate R not falls below the number one that's the uh, that's the measurement that means that the that the rate of spread of the virus is uh is not sufficient to sustain the outbreak over time so uh looking for r naught of less than 1 in various parts of the country is um a, a key metric that epidemiologists are using to track uh the rate of the spread and that seems to be falling in several places on the therapeutic side remdesivir seems to have had uh some success in a recent trial that's being conducted by NIH. They released some preliminary data this week that showed that when administered uh, to patients, the average stay of uh, of a patient in the hospital could be dropped from 15 days to 11 days. Uh, that's a significant drop when you think about the amount of care, the time on a ventilator, the amount of personal protective equipment uh, that is devoted to a patient. While some people may look at that and say, "Well, gee, that doesn't sound like an out-and-out cure." The, that's a really significant drop in the amount of uh, resources that need to be devoted to uh, a COVID patient under critical care. So uh, we're going to be watching that story going forward very closely. Uh, needless to say, of course, that is no uh, that is no reason that the vaccine teams around the world should be taking their foot off the gas. Uh, the long-term solution to the COVID outbreak will be the, the development and manufacture and widespread use of uh, an effective vaccine for uh, SARS-CoV-2. But along the uh, along the lines of other interventions, uh, states are beginning to hire teams of, uh, for contact tracing, uh, notably in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Utah, and also the city of San Francisco are leading on that initiative. Uh, and as we know, um, the, com- the combination of widespread testing plus contact tracing is really necessary to help drive that are not figured down to less than one and really contain the spread of the epidemic. So that's really uh, so that's all positive news. Uh, let me hand it over to Dylan however for uh, some more uh, some more sobering news uh, from uh, some from recent accounts.
1: Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, you know it's been really exciting to see all the the events that that Kevin has noted and so there's some really exciting things happening there but unfortunately, we are at a marker, a particularly extensive marker uh, going forward. Sixty thousand lives have been lost in the United States. And, you know, uh, these lives are are these deaths are what we're what we know of right now. Likely there's more deaths that we're just don't aren't familiar with or haven't actually recorded yet. And so it's likely that that number is is low. It's, you know, it's hard for me to put into words to express how tragic this is when thinking about the families and the friends that are dealing with, uh, um, uh, lost loved ones. It just breaks my heart to think about that and to try to think about what could be done to help them. And I just, you know, I'm just at a loss of words, uh, when thinking about, uh, all the deaths that are going on right now. In particular, the other thing that was particularly striking this last week was, I was struck recently that the Vietnam War claimed about 58,000 American lives. NPR has reported on this over this last week. The comparison is really meaningful. I mean, infectious diseases shape society. They have, they have been shaping society throughout history. And, um, not only are they shaping our society right now, it is clearly a national security priority. We've in past podcasts, we've talked about how what we're experiencing in COVID is a 9-11 sized event, but it's slow moving. We're seeing it. The other comparison right now, it's a slow moving Vietnam war. Um, and it's, it's more extensive than what we've seen in the lives lost in Vietnam. Um, and so as we think about how COVID is reshaping our society, uh, soon we will need to think deeply about how we want it to reshape our society and how we want it to be our society to look in the future. Governor Cuomo has this really interesting phrase. He says that we need to think about building back better. Um, how we build back better will determine how well we are able to withstand the wave that we're going to experience in the fall and how we're going to experience um, and be prepared for the next pandemic, which we know is going to come. So, um, it's a it's a somber moment that we have to look at the, those statistics and think about them, but um, it definitely puts the pandemic in perspective uh, from in a lot of ways
0: for me. I couldn't agree more. And you know, there will be people who question the expense going forward of doing that, um, but we should invite them to look at the two and a half trillion dollars that have already been spent in short order, uh, and then weigh that uh, you know, spent again in the future if we're not prepared um against the you know what could be incremental and uh and intentionally spent you know intelligently over time to develop that kind of uh resilience and and uh, biological defense capacity so i think that's that's really important contributing to that of course is our ability to understand data from epidemics better and to share it and visualize it in ways that people can uh can quickly absorb and understand and now uh Dylan and Andrea are going to talk about uh, the Intel Labs visualization team's effort uh, called Coviz. So let me hand it over to yeah. Dylan.
1: So super excited! Today we're joined by our amazing colleague Andrea Brennan, who runs the data visualization team in ITT Labs. Andrea, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the to uh, the listeners?
2: Great, thanks. So first of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's really an honor to be here. Uh, and to talk about some of the work that we've been doing recently. So given the seriousness of today's topic, I feel like it's important for me to say up front that I'm, my, my expertise in epidemiology or biology or even public health uh, It's in design and data visualization. So I originally studied math, and then I actually did my graduate work in architectural design at MIT, uh, but I've spent my whole career working at the intersection of user experience design and data visualization. And in particular, in the work that we do at IQT Labs, uh, we're very interested in visualizing uncertainty. Uh, So there are tons and tons of data viz tools out there today, but even so, we still don't have a lot of capabilities that help us to understand and to reason about uncertainty, risk, and probabilistic information. And something that I've seen happen over and over again in a lot of different contexts is that data scientists or statisticians will sometimes make a chart to show and communicate a result, but when they brief that result to a decision maker, even though it's accompanied by a voiceover or some narrative that provides additional context about errors or uncertainties or maybe collection bias, something like that, often those uncertainties aren't represented in the graphic themselves. And sometimes when that's the case, we see that it's easy for people to pay more attention to what's visually represented on the page or in the chart, and sometimes not pay enough attention to some of the caveats that accompany that. So even though these uncertainties are clear in the data scientist or the statistician's mind, if they're not conveyed visually, they don't always get as much emphasis. Um, and, you know, sometimes that doesn't matter. Like, sometimes it's, it's completely fine to disregard uh, those uncertainties, but in high-stakes situations, We just think that it's critical that decision-makers have all of the important information in front of them, even the stuff or maybe especially the stuff that we know we don't know about the data.
1: Yeah, so clearly you can see why we love Andrea and why she's so valuable to our team because she brings such a unique perspective and the the work that she's been doing is so so incredible. Uh, you, You did some work on visualizing influenza forecasts. Uh, tell us about that project and what you were doing and how you were interfacing with the uh, Centers of Disease Control and Prevention.
2: Right. So as you probably know, um, Bnex was already doing quite a bit of work on infectious disease forecasting, and this seemed like a really fantastic use case to try to put to work some of the thinking that we've been doing around how to visualize uncertainty. Obviously, when you're talking about Uh, forecasting. You can't really get away from the idea of uncertainty and the importance of factoring that into any decisions that are made based on the data. Uh, And so we we basically started out by doing quite a bit of user research with folks from the CDC Influenza Division to try to understand what were they really doing with these infectious disease forecasts? What kind of questions were they trying to answer from the forecast data? And then how could we do a better job or help them improve the tools that they have to visualize that forecast data and also make explicit some of the uncertainties in that data. So what we found from this initial user research was that there were really three main questions that they wanted to try to answer. One was, when will flu peak? The second was, when it does peak, how bad will it be? And the third was trying to understand something about what was next week going to look like in relation to today. So is are things getting better or worse? Is it trending up or down? And so basically from that user research, we then designed a series of tools, which we call Visiflu, uh, to help display, to help answer the first question. So this is really around understanding when seasonal influenza is going to peak. And we did this in a way that uh, allowed analysts at the CDC to compare multiple forecasts. So we have a screen that lets them see multiple forecasts from multiple models at the same time. And then we make very explicit both uncertainties within each individual forecast, and then we're also kind of allowing them to understand a different kind of uncertainty that arises when you have multiple forecasts predicting different things. So that was kind of what we were trying to do in the Visiflu project, and this is something that we've been working on for a couple of years, actually.
1: Yeah, no, and the, the, the project, that particular project is just so exciting to work on because it was so well received by the CDC We had actually engaged with, you know, the with um, the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists, and they had looked at some of those visualizations. Um, And so it was it was it was so pleasing to us to see that these kinds of capabilities could be useful to decision makers at the federal and state levels. And so um, it was, from my perspective, it was a huge success. Um, I I found it to, and it was a very fun project to work on with you and George and um, all the people that were involved. Um, So. How did you pivot to working on COVID-19 then, and what have you been doing there?
2: Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's funny. When we started working on the Visa Flu project, um, we began with flu mostly because, uh, in my understanding, we, we as a community have the best data about seasonal influenza compared to other infectious diseases or other outbreaks, right? And it makes sense because seasonal flu happens every year. There's quite a good process in place for collecting um, data about how many people across the country uh, come down with the flu, how many fatalities there are because of that. Uh, So there's just like a lot of data available um, about flu. And because of that, there's a lot of people who've spent a lot of time thinking about how to forecast or how to use that existing data to model um, what might happen in the coming year. So even though we started with flu, though, um, we always thought of these capabilities as something that would generalize to another um, infectious disease outbreak. And so, in a way, uh, thinking about COVID allowed us to kind of test that hunch, right? We we, we hoped that the tools we had built for, um, for flu would translate, and then in the work that we've tried to do over the past uh, four or five weeks, we've tried to, to test that to see, well, what happens when we take these tools that we built to, to kind of look at forecasts around flu and we use them instead to look at forecasts for COVID. Um, we sort of lucked out in that a lot of the folks we had met at CDC who work in the influenza division um, are also involved in the COVID forecasting efforts, um, which which makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because in a way, some of the symptoms are are quite similar, right? So initially, the CDC looking at um, something called ILI or influenza-like illness, and they were asking forecasting teams to to look at that as a target, which is the same um, a similar target as what what they look at for flu.
1: Yeah, and I, I agree with you. It's like. The, the, the kind of shorthand and the network of people that you had engaged with from the modeling community and the ac- academia, but also on the, on the CDC side, I think really enabled that pivot uh, to work on COVID and to do it very quickly. I think that if we would have come in cold, it would have taken so much more time to establish relationships and, and communication and understand what they needed and what, what you could provide. But because you'd already been working with them, that pivot happened pretty seamlessly and pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to say, too, that, um, you know, a lot of the user research that we had done on trying to understand what uh, the CDC wanted to get out of flu forecasting, a lot of that was generalizable to to other epidemics as well, right? These questions about when is it going to peak, how bad will it be, is next week going to be better or worse than this week, um, there's nothing specific to flu in those kind of larger questions that we're trying to help answer. And then again, um, the importance of understanding uncertainty around those predictions. So not just when is COVID likely to peak, but what probability does the model assign to that prediction, right? So how confident is a model in making that, in picking that date? Uh, I mean, these are higher level questions that um, are as important, maybe more so when it comes to COVID um, than, than influenza.
1: Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point, though, too, in terms of trying to have confidence in particular modeling results. We've seen in the press a lot um, over the last few weeks about which model to use, why, which one to focus on, this kind of dueling model problem. Um, What kind of advice do you have in trying to think through those those particular challenges?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I should turn that one back on you. Uh, No, (laughs) Um, I I think One thing that's definitely become clear to me from all the work that we've done trying to visualize forecasts is that it's no matter how good a particular model is, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation if you're only looking at one model, right? All models have blind spots. All models make assumptions, specific assumptions. And you don't always know um, whether those assumptions are the right assumptions to make, right? It's very difficult to know that um, in advance. And so I really feel strongly that it's important to look across a range of models um, and to look at and be in a position to kind of compare them, right? And what you're looking for is higher-level or meta-level questions like, do all of these different models that have different methods and different kinds of data inputs, do they agree or not, right? If you have lots of different models created by different people making different assumptions, and they're predicting something similar, then that should give you a higher level of confidence in that aggregate prediction. Yeah, Um, yeah, I I think it's, especially with something like COVID, um, we just have so little data about the actual virus and we have so little data, like such a short period of time that it's been around, that it's very difficult to evaluate the validity or the accuracy of any individual model. So I think it's even more important to look at a range of opinions.
1: Yeah, um, you know, you, you've also been doing some really great work with um, Nick Reich at University of Massachusetts Amherst to understand the different models showing COVID results. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing because it's exactly you know what you're talking about, trying to help compare these models in a more effective way than what we've been seeing in, in some of the
2: press. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for what Nick Reich and his lab are doing at UMass. Um, I think they've really undertaken this amazing effort to try to curate um, a set of models and also do work to kind of uh, reformat some of the data coming out of those models to allow um Kind of a closer to an apples to apples comparison across all the different forecasts, and I I think that I think that's just of crucial importance. Um, And so, one thing that we've tried to do to support that team is to um, help. In addition to kind of allowing straightforward comparison of the output of those models, we've also tried to collect publicly available information about what assumptions those different models are making, um, and then standardize a, a metadata format to provide along with the forecast results. So that people at the CDC or data journalists or anybody else who's interested in looking at the data can also have some additional visibility into um, some different assumptions that are built into the models. And in particular, we're very interested in what assumptions the different models are making with regards to social distancing or contact reduction. Because I think that's something that um, one thing I've seen is that that varies quite a bit across the models. And so, you know, especially as we're in such a dynamic environment where different states are kind of making different decisions, and it's anybody's guess, like, what, you know, how much social distancing we're going to see a month from now, um, it's very important to keep in mind what assumptions are built into the models, right?
1: Yeah, completely agree. And it's like seeing some of the reports in the press recently about quarantine fatigue and um, the the like – it's, it's this open question of how long we can actually in, impose these long term physical distancing across the population. And so knowing the impact of, of these particular mitigations uh, is going to be particularly critical going forward.
2: No, just, just to add one more thing, I mean, I think it's important to say that, you know, our team, like we're not in a position to uh, gauge or comment on the validity of any particular set of assumptions. Um, but all we're trying to do is make all of that information available to decision makers, right? It's really, it's not our place to say this is a better set of assumptions than this or, or even this is this, you know, this, the types of assumptions that a model should or shouldn't be making. Uh, it's not, there's no value judgment attached to any of this. It's really just about making the information available and transparent to people who are trying to use the, the output of these models.
1: Well, one of the things that I've been really excited about working with you and George Siniowski in your lab and um, you're part of the IQT lab is that you're so creative and you come up with such interesting ways of visualizing the data in ways that I never would have thought of. And it, it is interesting to see that the information that you can actually convey through different visualizations that, again, it's like I wouldn't have come up with those. And so it's been just a pleasure working with you and George on these particular projects. We definitely is there a place where people can actually see the work that you've done on CoViz and um, on Visiflu?
2: That's a great question. So people can find out more information about our work um, at the in Labs site. We also have a blog called High Stakes Design. Um, we don't have anything specific to our CoViz work up yet, but you can find out quite a bit about Visiflu um, on that blog.
1: And then uh, tell us as well. I mean, just uh, just a foot stomp it a little bit more though too. It's like there's um they did some comparisons of models on the CDC website as well. And what was your input on on that um, uh, website?
2: So again, uh, we uh, we were part of some conversations about how to present um, those forecasts to the public on the CDC website. And uh, I sound like a broken record here, but we we just felt very. Uh, very strongly that all of these assumptions that are built into the models, as well as some, some information about the different modeling methodologies um, that are being used, we felt that that all should be made publicly available on the site.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it was great work, and it was really wonderful, and it definitely was value-add.
0: Right. Uh, so the, um, the information about VisiFlu is, of course, on IQT Labs', uh, IQT Labs uh, website, uh, and there's also a GitHub repository as well. Is that true?
2: Yes, that's right, which we will make available in a link alongside this podcast.
0: But, again, you, you can see, um,
1: and it's always funny to talk about visualizations in a podcast, but it's uh, <laughs> um, seeing her work. Um, the data viz work at IQT Labs is, I, I highly encourage it. It's um, It's been really fun to work with them. Also, it's just been excellent work. So you can definitely pay attention to what they're doing um, from the links uh, that we'll associate with this podcast, but also um, on the IQT Labs website um, as well. Um, but, Andrea, thanks so much for taking some time and talking to us about COVID and what you've been doing. We really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you both for uh, for a fabulous conversation. And also thanks to our producers, Carrie Sassine and Kristen Zender. And uh, that wraps up another edition of uh, the IQT podcast, uh, Be Next Style. Thank you.